Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Elizabeth Todd Breland, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Dr. Todd Breland is on to discuss her recently published book by our friends at UNC Press entitled A Political Education, Black Politics, and an Education Reform in Chicago Since the 1960s. Welcome to the show, Professor. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great now. We got everything settled. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about how you came to this project and and why Chicago was the perfect place for a study like yours? Sure. So um, in a certain way, I feel like I've been on the path to this project for a very long time. Um, In reflecting back on my own education, I was born in Washington, D.C., and my family moved to suburban Maryland when I was in elementary school. And part of that move was because of schools and their desire for me to have opportunities for a better education and a better funded school system. Um, But even when I was in a presumably diverse school system growing up, you could still see things like tracking and sort of inequities within that type of system. Um, And so I feel like that was something I was aware of. And I went to college and I became interested in becoming a historian, uh, mainly through the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program that made me see becoming a historian as, as a possibility and becoming a professor as a possibility. And so um, when I went to graduate school, I knew I wanted to study African-American history. I was interested in urban history. The first research, real primary source research project I had done was my undergraduate thesis, was, which was about Chicago um, and about the history of the Wabash Avenue YMCA, which is the YMCA where um, Carter G. Woodson founded Negro History Week, where Asala um, emanated from. And um, so I was very interested in Chicago's history as a central place in the the history of, you know, certainly African-American urban history. um, But as we had talked before this about it being a certain type of black Mecca um, in Chicago. Uh, But I also, through the course of that time, had been working in schools. So when I was in college in Philadelphia, I was... um, tutoring um, and doing after-school programs with high school students and some middle school students. And in retrospect, I look back on this, and this was in the early 2000s, at the time when a number of things were happening, major transformations. So No Child Left Behind at the national level was a policy that had been implemented around that time. Um, What else is going on? Paul Vallis um, had just come from Chicago to Philadelphia, where I was, you know, working in schools at the time. Um, And so there was this um, really a peak and increasingly uh, prominent strand of a corporate model of education reform. And I was seeing that also when I was in Chicago. So when I was in graduate school, I actually worked at a charter school for a couple of years. And the charter school that I worked at, uh, was co-located with a traditional public school 
And as I started doing my research around education, that co-located school, Wadsworth Elementary School, um, was one of the elementary schools that was involved in a community control project in the 1960s that I was studying and doing research on. And so it was this sort of moment where I was seeing these multiple generations of education reform in the same space. And as I moved from this dissertation project into what would become the book, it also became clear to me that Chicago wasn't just a place that was producing black politics, which that was something that was clear, right? This was during the Obama presidency, right? Um, And historically, Chicago has produced a large number of black elected officials locally, but also at the national level in terms of Congress, senators. Um, But I also was seeing that the education reform policies that were developed in Chicago were spreading nationally and were looked upon as models, um, particularly in the 1980s around a decentralization project that tried to create local control of schools um, under, it came out of Harold Washington's administration, the first black mayor of the city. And then again, certainly with with Richard M. Daley, it as the sort of corporate turn in education reform was happening. So all of these things were things I was both studying and experiencing in some ways or experiencing the fallout from. And one of the things that was troubling to me was that the sort of accepted dialogue in the early to mid 2000s, you know, 2000s, I guess we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> About education reform. Yeah. Like 2000s was the, um, was that the people that were going to make decisions about education reform, the people that were best equipped to do that were corporate leaders, was the philanthropic community, foundations, you can think about the Gates Foundation, Walton Foundation, um, that the, the logics of private enterprise uh, were seen as the best way to transform schools. And that fundamentally differed from many of the models that I was seeing being put forth in my own research by Black folks in communities. Um, And I think that it was troubling to me that this sort of corporate model of education reform had in many ways eclipsed and erased this longer history I was studying of education reform ideas um, put forth by Black people, Black educators, Black students, Black parents in communities here in Chicago. So that's a long way of sort of saying how I got to this project um, and why it felt really important and really timely uh, to be doing this particular type of historical work. And so, Professor, can you talk to us a bit about um, kind of like the, the terms and such, because you use um, a term like neoliberalism quite often in the text, and um, especially in the corporatized uh, turn of education, um, that's a term that a lot of folks uh, uh, use that I don't know if, if we're necessarily using the same definition for. So for the matters of this conversation, can you kind of define kind of like uh, neoliberalism and any other terms uh, uh, or frameworks that you define in, in the text? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it was a it was an interesting, I think, decision for me to to deploy neoliberalism in the way that I do. I think sometimes, um, in the way that the term is used, neoliberalism seems to mean everything and nothing that's happened since around in and around the nineteen seventies. Um, and so, 
I guess for me, it was important to ground the idea and the term specifically in, in the context that I'm looking at. And part of the reason that was important is because debates around um, neoliberalism and neoliberal policies are discussed a lot in education policy um, debates. And so I wanted to be part of that conversation. So I think generally people talk about neoliberalism, both in the context of the U.S. and as a global turn, particularly in sort of what's understood as the global north um, that happened in and around the crisis of the 1970s, maybe started earlier than that, where, excuse me, you see a consolidation of um, power by a uh, smaller corporate and political elite. Um, You see the rise of finance capitalism, the transfer of the economy from more of an industrial economy to a service sector economy. But in the context of education, um, the ramifications that I'm looking at of that uh, tended to do with things like the large-scale transfer of public funds to private entities Um, It had to do with the broader divestment of public funds from public education, um, the attack on teachers unions, uh, and sort of just more generally the embrace of market ideology and market-based policies as the best way to transform public education, um, not just by the corporate sector, but also by public administrators, excuse me, state, federal, and local officials. I guess if I'm thinking Very, about oh, oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say if I'm thinking about no, other terms, yeah. I don't know if you want me to talk about some other terms as well. Oh yeah, yes, absolutely, please. Yeah. So another term that was a sort of fraught decision about how to deal with it is this term, education reformer. Again, I'm writing this in the early 2000s. There's all this conversation about education reform, and education is the new civil rights you know, issue of our time, which certainly is not a new civil rights issue. Um, But I think part of what, again, led me to this project was a dissatisfaction and a certain troubled, uh, it troubled me that education reformers as people um, or entities were always imagined as almost always white, um, predominantly male elites. And so I kind of, it was important for me to use the term education reformer to talk about Black people um, and Black community-based organizings and organizing, I should say, and visions of what educational change, educational reform might look like. So that's another term that I use, I think, in a kind of specific way. And then I guess conceptually, the last term I'd want to talk about um, is an idea I put forth uh, called the politics of Black achievement. And for me, one of the things I was finding in looking at, for instance, um, movements in the 60s and 70s for desegregation um, and community control and the founding of independent Black institutions is that I think particularly things like um, desegregation and community control and independent institutions, that they're set up as um, oppositional ideas, um, as sort of discrete and mutually exclusive ideas. But I was seeing a thread between them in terms of how um, different Black education organizers were imagining what these ideas might have in terms of a sort of liberatory capacity. And so that's where I came to this term, the politics of Black achievement. Um, I think it came, this this idea of a sort of um, one, a robust vision of what achievement means, that we're not talking about a sort of contemporary idea about achievement based on test scores in education, but about, um, you know, a broader idea of personhood um, and becoming, um, you know, nurturing children, um, nurturing children to embrace a Black identity, um, that 
this idea of a politics of black achievement uh, was in response, I think, both to, in some ways, the failure of desegregation and racial liberalism more largely as a a project of the mid-20th century, um, but also in response to a number of reports that were coming out by the federal government and also sort of social scientists, things like the Moynihan Report and the Coleman Report, and even the ideology undergirding the Brown decision, which in some ways um, inherently saw, saw... all black institutions as inherently inferior and by extension, black people as, you know, sort of understanding them from a black people from a deficit model. And so coming out of those um, ideas, you see what I call this politics of black achievement that is assertively um, putting forth a different vision of black communities and black children and the potential of black education. Yeah. And and the politics of black achievement was one of my favorite uh, terms that, that you use because um, it, it harkens back to um, my reading of Dr. Abram X. Kendi's prize-winning book, uh, stamped, from the, from, stamped from the Beginning, that talked about um, African-American or, or Black folks generally um, and, and kind of how they can be used uh, as uh, racial exhibits. So almost as a perfect segue, you can think about uh, the previous day's uh, uh, Cohen uh, testimony where one of the guys is being called racist, I guess, and he brings a black, you know, HUD uh, uh, a member or talks to uh, uh, Elijah Cummings about, you know, their friendship and and such as a reason why they're not racist and such. And so I, I only bring that up because it, it, it almost brings up the fact of how uh, people, you know, the, the black achievement can be used in so many different ways to where your positionality can be used, whether or not you want it to be used for a particular reason or not. Um, and I, and I really found it to be a very, uh, your term of, of the policies of black achievement, um, very, very important. Um, and so thank you for defining that as well. And so, um, kind of on this kind of thought about themes, uh, one of your very important themes, were about um, Black women's political activism. Um, who are some of the important Black women that that were woven throughout uh, your book? Because they, there are a number of, uh, of them throughout. Yeah. So I think for me, it was very important to be clear from the beginning of the book that Black education organizing is Black women's organizing. Um, black women have been at the forefront of education organizing for you know, hundreds of years. Um, But certainly in the period that I'm looking at, African-American teachers, for example, in Chicago are disproportionately Black women. By the 80s, 80% of Black teachers are Black women. Um, Often some of the protests that I'm looking at in the earlier parts of the book were led by Black mothers um, and parents being very much involved in this this work. So I do sort of focus in on a few individuals to sort of drive the narrative, but certainly understanding that these were just a few people, um, that there were many other women who were prominent and important in these roles. So I start the book by talking about um, the movement for desegregation of schools in Chicago. And I focus on a woman named Rosie Simpson. And Rosie Simpson um, was 
she had a background in union work. Uh, she dropped out of high school when she was 14. Uh, she was a black migrant from the South. She came to Chicago with her family when she was a child. She dropped out of high school at the age of 15 and started working in meatpacking, which was a major industry in Chicago at the time. She started working in meatpacking in the 1940s, a time when black women um, were needed in the labor force because of the wartime context. And she used that union organizing background to become involved politically. She joined the NAACP. Um, and later when she had children, she started staging protests uh, for, uh, for desegregation. And in the case of Rosie Simpson, the tactic that was uh, attempted to be used for uh, to prevent desegregation of Chicago public schools was that Black schools were overcrowded. And instead of allowing Black students to occupy open seats in white schools, they would put Black students in portable classrooms. And these classrooms, which were trailers, um, started to be called Willis Wagons. And they were called Willis Wagons, named after the superintendent at the time um, who maintained segregation in the system, Benjamin Willis. And so Rosie Simpson's kids, she had several children, came home from school and said, well, we're moving schools, but we're not moving to a new school. They're going to create an all-trailer um, classroom or, or school campus uh, between a set of railroad tracks and an alley. Um, and she was like, this is unacceptable, and organized parents in the community in what became called the 71st and Stewart Council, which I think is interesting, too, because block clubs are very prominent in Chicago. And so this idea of having a block-based um, parent organization makes a lot of sense. Um, and these parents organized, and they laid their bodies on the line to prevent the installation of these Willis wagons. They literally laid down in front of bulldozers um, to make sure that these Willis wagons could not be installed. And um, this became the catalyst for a citywide movement that would eventually lead to a massive um, citywide boycott in the fall of 1963, where more than a quarter of a million students stayed home from school. And so I think Rosie Simpson is just an example of one um, Black woman who was very important and often left out of the history books um, and the type of organizing she was doing, very grassroots in nature. But also she became one of the few Black women um, who were actively involved in the highest levels in the Coordinating Council of Community Organizations in Chicago, which was the Chicago Coalition um, of the Civil Rights Coalition in the city, um, dominated certainly on the forefront and publicly by men uh, who are also important and very much involved, um, Reverend Arthur Brazier, um, Larry Landry, um, Al Raby, all very important figures. Um, but I think that looking at this history um, through a woman like Rosie Simpson, it's not just a sort of like, yes, and we did this also history, but it fundamentally shows different modes of organizing that were um, implemented by Black folks, different trajectories to get into this organizing work, different arguments that were being made about the necessity of education for children, particularly from the purview in her case of a, of a mother, right? Um, and so that's just sort of one example. There, there are many women. I'd be happy to talk about all of them if you want me to, but yeah, um, yeah, just as sort of one example. Yeah, and, 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 I think of, and, and I think about this question because I, I, whenever I think about Chicago, I always think about Ida B. Wells, uh, Barnett, because she was Barnett by the time she got to Chicago. Um, and so I think about her activism and, 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 you know, in the 19, well, really going all the way back to um, the 1880s, really, um, up until her death in the 1930s. Um, and I think about 
you know, Chicago being this place where when I, you know, I, I think about um, Chicago and I think about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Philadelphia, two places that you're familiar with, with how in the really that post uh, civil rights era, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you have two, you know, uh, political machines, right? You have the Rizzo's, uh, the Rizzo, and and you also have um, uh, the Daily, if I'm not mistaken, in um, in Chicago. And so, um, you know, it's interesting because both are infamous, <laughs> depending on the community at which you you uh, you speak about. And so, um, as a lot of your story breaks down, I I notice a lot about the political coalitions and the the different political organizing that's going around that is circumventing um, this kind of machine political power. But then also at times, you know, you're having to work in this way that it sounds, at least from the way the text rolls out, that there are some uncomfortable decisions at times that had to be made. Um, And so can you kind of talk about that particular uh, uh, portion of of the text too and kind of how some of your, many of your uh, 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 political actors uh, and, and reformers um, are having to deal with this kind of thing on a daily basis. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that continues to animate me and make me excited about studying the history of Chicago and the history of Black politics in Chicago is that there is, as you mentioned, this really strong um long and enduring history since the, you know, 1930s and even a little bit before um, of this very powerful political machine, uh, the Democratic Party organization. And at first under Richard J. Daley, well, it started earlier than him, but really consolidated in the 1950s under Richard J. Daley. It's an extremely um, powerful patronage machine, right? So doling out favors and jobs in exchange for loyalty, political loyalty. Um, And it's impenetrable in many ways. And then even after his death um, and after the Harold Washington era, it gets reconstructed um, with closer ties to corporate power in the city as this sort of um, political corporate nexus. But still, there's this long tradition of this very strong corporate, political, almost autocratic power in the city. At the same time that there's this really rich and robust and longstanding political organizing and community organizing tradition, grassroots organizing tradition in Chicago. And so looking at how those two parallel histories play out, intersect, challenge each other um, is is one of the fun parts, I think, about this work. And it, it keeps going. It happens today, right? Um, but to your to your question about how people navigate that, so one of the groups I look at is, um, and I look at the founding of independent Black institutions. So in the late 60s um, and into the 1970s, uh, a group of folks start founding independent Black institutions, and particularly independent Black schools. And one of the organizations that I look at is the Institute of Positive Education. And they explicitly said, um, and their founders, uh, who included Hakeem Matabudi, um, Carol Lee, Safisha Matabudi, um, and others, Soini Walton was one of the early members, someone who I focus on in the book, um, they explicitly founded themselves as an independent Black institution, an African-centered independent Black institution that felt that Black people would never be free, would never be able to find liberation within while taking money from public institutions, that those institutions were ultimately corrupt, um, were 
not in the interest of Black people um, and Black people's progress and Black people's liberation. And so they founded the Institute of Positive Education and their school, the New Concept Development Center, as an independent school. Um, and I think one of the the difficulties that they encountered was the finances to keep the school going, right? And so uh, they didn't want to charge community members an exorbitant amount of tuition because they wanted to be able to serve folks, um, but they had to keep the lights on and have, you know, resources for students. Um, and so over time, you know, they encountered a number of financial difficulties. And ultimately in the 1990s, as charter schools were coming onto the scene, they decided to um, open a charter school to transition um, the K through eight part of the new concept development center into a charter school. And their first charter school was the Betty Shabazz charter school. Um, it later became a network of charter schools. And I think a couple things to say about that. I think one in the uh, late nineties, when they were founding the school um, and entering the charter sphere, I don't think it was quite clear as it is now um, that charters were going to become a space that were dominated by corporations um, that were dominated in many places, not Chicago necessarily, but in other places by explicitly for-profit organizations. Um, And so you do see sort of more of these kind of mom and pop type charter schools, people coming out of community-based work, entering the charter sphere before it's kind of taken over by these larger franchises um, that are, and you know, the, the, um, you call it sort of like venture capitalist mm-hmm. world. Um, and so when they entered that space, though, they were part of a larger network of independent black schools um, that was called CB. And this was a major debate within CB about whether member institutions should be entering the charter space, um, whether they should be taking money from the state. Again, going back to these founding ideas that if you're taking money from the state, you have to then be accountable to the state in ways that may um, seem antithetical to their visions of the liberation of black people. And so the argument, I remember talking to Carol Lee about this and part of her argument was like, you know, at some level we're paying taxes too, and we want to use that money to educate in the way we want. And charter schools were for that for them providing a space, um, to have the curricular flexibility, flexibility to maintain their African-centered curriculum and pedagogy at the same time that they were able to reach far more students because of state support. Um, But it remained a contentious issue within that community. And eventually, I believe they left CB, um, the larger national network of independent Black institutions, the Council of Independent Black Institutions, because of this split. So to your earlier point, I mean, I think you see a number of ways that folks are trying to um, navigate these, this changing ground on which they're operating. You know, often people will say, particularly looking at something like segregation um, or issues of school closings, for example, in Chicago today, and these, these um, enduring inequities in the city, racial inequities, economic inequities in the city, oh, you know, things haven't changed. But, you know, we're historians, Mm -hmm. right? No, things have changed, right? inequality is still a thing, but the grounds on which that inequality is based, um, the terms of those inequities in some ways have changed. And I'll look at that as an example um, with something like community control. So part of the reason why the community control movement was so strong in the late 19, mid to late 1960s um, and 
such a an important call at that time is because that's the time where you see um, the sort of height of the war on poverty. So there actually are funds that are you know becoming available, increasingly coming to, into cities, into place, into communities of color, into poor communities, and the folks in those communities are making a demand on who should control those funds, right? That's something different than our current context, where in many ways we see a divestment um, of funds for education at the federal, state, and local level. Um, And so how you fight in that context would be different, right? The strategies that you might put forth in that context would be different because the grounds on which um, those movements are developing are different. And I also think about the fact of um, you being a, a former a charter school teacher as well. That, did that inform your work on this project at, at uh, a lot? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, could, could you speak to that? <laughs> and it was funny. Yeah, so it was funny at the time. At there was a period of time of overlap where I was working at a charter school and my partner was working at a um, traditional public school both here in the city of Chicago. And we would just come home and go at each other about like, let me tell you what's wrong with charter schools. And he'd be like, but it's no better over here. Let me tell you what's happening over here. And I think that speaks to a number of things. I think one thing that I want to be clear about is that um, a critique of charter schools is not saying that the status quo is adequate. Right. A critique of charter schools is not saying that the resources in traditional public schools are adequate. It's not saying that the way in which disciplinary policies work in traditional public schools are appropriate for black children or any children. Right. Um, But I, I think what it's saying is that this corporate solution as it's developed is not the answer. And I think that was something that became, you know, clear to me when I was working in the charter context. I first was working as and we can look at this from a number of different avenues. One way I talk about it is in terms of teachers um, and the vast decline in the dramatic decline in black teachers in Chicago, um, which I think is representative of trends we see nationally, mm-hmm. um, was has been directly impacted by this corporate turn in, in public education. So in 1984, black teachers outnumbered white teachers in Chicago public schools for the first time, and black teachers remained a significant and, and that made them not just an important political base within the union or among teachers, but but within the city, right? So Harold Washington was elected um, with a strong support of black educators. Um, you know, black teachers are a relatively stable middle class within the context of a city that's experiencing deindustrialization. So black teachers, again, predominantly black women, overwhelmingly black women, are not just caretakers of children, which they are. Um, they're also, you know, the anchors of communities, financial anchors of communities, um, in some ways, substitute parental anchors of communities in the most struggling communities in the city. And so when you see um, the decline in black teachers, particularly since the 1990s, in the mid 90s and late 90s, black teachers were still in and around 40 or above 40 percent of Chicago public schools teachers. Today, they're uh, 21 percent of Chicago public schools teachers. And a lot of that has to do with this corporate turn. So when schools are closed, traditional public schools are closed, um, that black children are losing neighborhood schools and black teachers are losing their jobs. So in 2013, when 50 public schools were closed in the city, 70% of those schools had both um, 
majority black student and teacher populations. So the the issues that are impacting students are also impacting teachers. As that relates to charter schools, the other thing you see is that um, charter schools disproportionately hire younger, whiter teaching forces. Um, And that's something that I experienced when I was, you know, working in a charter school. I was there for its first year in operation. And out of the high school faculty, there were two black teachers. Um, And, you know, that's striking again in a school where that I'm studying that was a site of a community control movement, right? Led by a black woman, Dr. Barbara Sizemore as the director of that program, who was emphatic about the need to hire black teachers and have culturally responsive um, curriculum. So, yeah, I mean, I think certainly my experiences um, working in charter schools, my last, so I don't know if I said this, but my first two years, I was a social studies teacher. My last two years, I was a high school college counselor. And so just seeing the ways in which, um, you know, neighborhood school, that there's sort of a, a creaming effect, as they call it, um, or an ability to have more um, discretion in who stays and who goes within charter schools, the disciplinary policies, the adverse, you know, um, disparately impacting Black students at higher rates in charter schools in terms of disciplinary policies. I think all of those things certainly shaped um, not necessarily the the answers I was finding, but certainly the questions questions I was asking um, as I as I entered this research. And and I think about charter schools too because I I, I remember growing up um, and watching CNN and uh, CNN's uh, was it what's her former woman's name uh, Soledad O'Brien. The former uh, uh, journalist for at CNN, she had uh, the the Black in America series, and I, my family like we love that kind of stuff. Like, oh my gosh, like it's crazy. And so um, I remember watching that with my mom, and there was this guy on there named uh, Steve, Dr. Steve Perry from Connecticut, and started to learn about charter schools and such, and. I remember, like, I'll never forget this as long as I live, God, God willing. I'm like, Mom, I want to be, I want to start my own school. I see, I see Diddy got one. I see Steve Perry got one. I, I want one too. And I'm thinking, like, you know, that was my dream at like 15 or something like that. And then I started to realize, like, eh, I don't, I don't know about that. Then I started to learn a little more. Uh, but I, I only bring that story up because, um, I also found out about uh, like Harlem's Children's Zone in you know obviously Harlem through Jeffrey Canada, and that was also at the rise of me finding out about things like Teach for America, um, and and um, you know those kind of like those two three year kind of programs that you know are not necessarily sustainable in the sense of like the actual physical teachers being there because for the most part a relatively short time. Um, so that was my first, I guess, couple year foray into understanding charter schools. But then, you know, I lived in Boston for uh, about three years while I was getting my master's. And there was a bill recently about, you know, lifting the cap um, in, in, in the in Boston public schools for charter schools. And it was, let me tell you, it was contentious. Like, it was, it was like, wow. And um, as someone who didn't have charter schools at the time very much around my um school area in central florida i kind of saw it as more of like a like a city kind of situation 
But then I started to realize, like, nah, these things are out in they're out in rural areas and such, and they're a very contentious thing. And then you see um, Mark Zuckerberg giving a hundred million dollars, I think the number was, to to uh, Newark uh, public schools when um, was it Cory Booker was the mayor of the city, I believe. Um, and so when you're when I'm reading your text, all of these revelations of like. 2005 to like 2010 were rolling back because that was kind of like that corporate model that I had seen. And I'm thinking as well, like how did that kind of, obviously I don't think, you know, Chicago got like a hundred million dollars from like Mark Zuckerberg or any uh, corporate entity like that. But, you know, looking more in the contemporary sense and going kind of from, from, uh, from, uh, from Washington, um, on kind of like how has, you know, the, the corporatization of schools affected um, uh, the community in Chicago and also thinking about methodologies and thinking about how did, you know, oral histories, right? Because I'm someone who does 18th and 19th century stuff. So if I can talk to an actual person, then that's probably I'm talking to a ghost. <laughs> so... So I'm always fascinated by folks who do (laughs) contemporary work and incorporating oral histories. Yeah. So, okay. I'll start with the oral histories and then I'll talk about charter schools and just the sort of what, what the corporatization has meant, but methodologically. So it's funny when I started my dissertation, I really thought that I was going to, because much of the history I wanted to analyze had yet to been, be written in secondary sources. So I was concerned that even to figure out what happened before I could figure out what, how to make sense of these things that happened, I would have to rely primarily on oral histories. Um, and I actually found that there was quite a bit of archival material um, that I was able to find in municipal records, in um, people's personal papers, at the Vivian Harsh, Soci- uh, the Vivian Harsh Collection, um, which is a the largest collection of African-American history um, and cultural resources in the Midwest, which is here in Chicago at the Chicago Public Library at the Woods, Carter G. Woodson branch of the Public Library. It's one of my favorite places and things to be a part of. I'm actually on the board of the Vivian Harsh Society, which promotes the collection. So I always shout out that collection. Um, Yeah, but there was a lot of, uh, there was actually quite a bit of archival material, but I also knew that that had to be augmented by talking to folks who were there who were still around. Um, And so I did, I'd say a little over two dozen oral history interviews as part of this project. Um, I interviewed a a number of different people. I interviewed a lot of um, former and some current black educators. Um, I interviewed parent, you know, former parents of children who, you know, when they're, well, they're right. still their parents, but when, when they had children in Chicago public schools, organizers. Um, I also, though, was able to interview, uh, for instance, the leader of Carson Prairie Scott, a, the corporate head of Carson Prairie Scott, which was a major um, department store here in the city, um, a white corporate leader who was involved in um, Mayor Harold Washington's education reform plan. So getting some sort of other perspectives uh, on the topics and uh, ideas of why these folks would want to be involved in education. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the the oral histories were invaluable and also not just in sort of trying to reconstruct reconstruct these stories, but also understand relationships between people. So, you know, I'd be talking to one of my favorite interviews and series of interviews was with the teacher, a woman named Lily Peoples, who unfortunately has since passed. But she was a dynamic um, teacher leader and educator leader organizer. Um, she taught for 
a number of years in Chicago public schools. She also was an organizer with Operation Breadbaskets Teachers Division, what would later become Operation Push, um, in organizing teachers during the late 60s and into the Black teachers in the late 60s and into the early 70s to support Black student protests for Black power and community control, um, but also to advocate on behalf of Black teachers as public sector workers um, for the things that Black teachers should have and making those connections between Black students' concerns and Black teachers' concerns was something that was really powerful to learn more about. But also it would just be, you know, we'd have these wide ranging conversations. And sometimes I'd sort of reference other people I had been talking with. And she's like, oh, yeah, I knew her. You know, we worked in this. I was like, wait, those two organizations, you know, had like members that were in both. She's like, oh, absolutely. So putting together these social networks, oral histories were super valuable in that. Um, learning stories, stories that you don't always see in a formal archive. Oral histories were amazing for that. So I feel very fortunate to have been able to speak to folks um, who were there during those times that I was I was studying and even, you know, people who continue to be active today. Um, to this larger question about sort of the, cor- you know, what, what corporate, um, the corporate education reform movement has meant for urban education and Black students, I think... Uh, The first thing to say is back to my sort of earlier point about, um, you know, a critique of the corporate turn in education is not necessarily a, you know, full throated, uh, full throated support of the status quo. Um, I don't think it's a surprise that, for instance, black parents have flocked to charter schools, right? If you've been in a traditional public school that's been historically underfunded, historically um, you know, neglected in many different ways, sometimes intergenerationally, where your mm-hmm. children are attending the same school that you feel failed you, it makes sense to try something new, right? This is something new. This is something different. I'm going to try that, right? Like, that's a rational decision. So I in no way begrudge Black parents who, um, you know, are interested in trying out charter schools and have flocked to charter schools. And again, in some ways, I think it gets back to this idea of the politics of Black achievement. Like, their flocking to charter schools is not inherently support for sort of like the privatization of public entities. No, it's their, it's, I think, an indication of how difficult the circumstances that Black parents are navigating and how, um, how inequity plays out, right? Um, So that's one part of it. But Overall, I mean, I think it's just added to the stratification of public schooling. So certainly even within districts of traditional public schools, you've seen more magnet schools in a place like Chicago, selective enrollment schools that have segmented the population and charter schools have done that even further, right? So just creating these different tiers of education and educational opportunities. Um, It also though has directly siphoned off funds from that could otherwise be reinvested in traditional neighborhood schools. Uh, And then the way in which I think the logics of privatization and particularly the logics of competition have been used to govern public schooling, a public entity have been particularly pernicious. Um, And you can look at an example, uh, a place Mm. like Bronzeville, a community here on the South side or a community like Austin, a community on the West side, both predominantly African-American neighborhoods where already you saw a decrease in the 90s of the population, the school age population. That has something to do with like reduced birth rates amongst black people, but it also has something to do with black people being pushed out of the city by things like the demolition of public housing um, or other mechanisms by which black people are being pushed out of the city and pushed out of communities. Um, But so these are communities that already have a declining school age population. 
and Renaissance 2010, which was a um, policy put to place put in place here in Chicago um, in the early 2000s. The logic of it was that we're going to create hundreds of new schools in the city, and so in these schools that already have declining population, they now open up new charter schools near them to compete with traditional public schools for students. But this is an uneven competition, right? You're asking a public entity to compete with a hybrid public-private entity that's getting funds from out, both within from the public system and outside of the public system. Uh, but there's no additional resources being diverted or sent to the traditional public school to actually compete in any way. So I think this is just an example of how sort of the market logic fails in this realm. And so what ended up happening in many of these communities on the South side and the West side is that the traditional public schools were then closed. So there's already a declining school school age population, Mm -hmm. new Mm -hmm. schools are built when there's really not a need for new seats actually. Right. And then the logic that's put forth is that these traditional public schools need to close because now they're underutilized. They don't have enough bodies in the seats. They don't have enough bodies in the school to justify keeping the building open. And this was not, this isn't sort of a naturally occurring problem. This is a problem that was in fact created and exacerbated by the policies of the district, by the policies being put forth um, by big city mayors here in Chicago, Richard M. Daly, and even further by Rahm Emanuel, who followed him, um, both of whom are people that are very powerful within the Democratic Party, not just here in Chicago, but nationally. So I think it's also important to understand this corporate turn as a deeply bipartisan affair. Democrats and Republicans, both here in Chicago Chicago and nationally, came together to implement these policies. Um, and unfortunately, um, Black and brown communities, but particularly Black students um, and Black families have been the ones to pay the price for these policies. And, and you spoke about the uh, Black and brown communities being affected. Um, can you talk about um, uh, uh, Af- uh, Black uh, slash African American um, and, and Latinx, um, uh, how how they really coalesced on this particular issue, and and whether or not there was any uh, solidarities between the communities in within this space as well. So you know, Chicago is a deeply segregated city, um, and so I think coalitional efforts have always taken a lot of work here. But there certainly are these areas and in deep inequities in the city where you see. Um, the spaces and opportunities for solidarity. And I'll give a couple examples, both historically and more, con- you know, in more contemporary moments. So historically, you see this happening around the election of Harold Washington um, as the first black mayor of Chicago. So certainly, um, I think it's important to understand Harold Washington's election, not just as sort of another black mayor, because by the 80s, there had already been a number of black mayors, but a mayor that that was preceded by a movement. So there was a movement to elect a black mayor and Harold Washington was the person who was, who the community decided should be that person. He was a Congressman at the time from the South side of Chicago. And that movement to elect him, um, required a massive voter registration drive in Black communities, um, particularly in public housing and some of the poorest Black communities in the city, to get voters out. Just by way of comparison, um, we just recently had a municipal election earlier this week, and something like 30% of voters voted in the election. In Harold Washington's 1983 um, election, more than 80% of voters voted, right? So this was, and this was, that's an anomaly, right? To have that large part of the electorate come out to vote um, was 
required a movement, a major grassroots organizing effort. Uh, and that that was a coalitional effort that didn't just involve Black communities, but also Latinx communities drawing on this longer history. So there's a historian, Jacoby Williams, who writes about the Illinois Black Panther Party here in Chicago. And he talks about the original Rainbow Coalition, um, which you see under Fred Hampton in the late 60s, where Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, reaches out to uh, radical Puerto Rican organizers and Mexican-American organizers and white organizers um, in the city to come together around poor people's issues, to come together to fight against the machine, the political machine. And I think not as a coincidence, it's not long after he starts putting these coalitional efforts into place, of course, with the help of others, um, that he's murdered and assassinated um, by officials and the police here in Chicago. And so this sort of Harold Washington in some ways taps back in to that, um, that original rainbow coalition and works with progressive leaders in um, Chicago's Mexican American community in Pilsen in the Puerto Rican community um, in Humboldt park um, and also reaching out to white liberals as well. But, you know, there's a significant in relation to previous um, voting a significant coalition built with Latinx um, Chicagoans as part of this movement to elect Harold Washington. I think you see some of that, at least on an electoral level, um, crumble and realign after his death, Harold Washington's death. Um, But more recently, certainly around school issues, you've seen the coming together of um, Latinx and Black communities around what this corporate movement has meant. And I do think it's important to note the ways in which Um, there have been distinctions in what that has meant. So for example, school closings um, overwhelmingly impact Black students and Black schools and Black communities, um, although there are some Latinx schools as well, but overwhelmingly, as I mentioned before, like 80 to 90% of the schools closed were predominantly Black schools. Um, So that's an issue that particularly impacts Black students. But the proliferation of charter schools has been something that's cut across um, Black and Latinx communities. And so you see Um, You've seen coalitional efforts and grassroots um, efforts in a number of spaces here in places like um, the Grassroots Collaborative, which is a group here that organizes. Um, There's something called GEM, the Grassroots Education Movement, that's brought people together across, you know, different racial groups in the city. And then I think also the Chicago Teachers Union, since 2010, um, when the leadership came to power under Karen Lewis, a veteran Black educator um, who became head of the Teachers Union, that that union leadership has explicitly reached out to Black community and Latinx community organizations um, to partner with them in work around uh, you know, pushing back against austerity politics more generally and pushing for a vision, a robust vision of what the Chicago Teachers Union calls, you know, the schools that all student, all Chicago students deserve. So wraparound services, air conditioning in every, uh, in every building, um, the requisite number of uh, social workers and counselors and psychologists for students who are coming to school with trauma, right? Like, we always talk, there's a lot of national conversation about violence in Chicago and the response generally is looked to in law enforcement. But part of what coalitional groups in the city have been demanding is mental health services, um, neighborhood schools being used as community centers and spaces uh, to provide services to families and communities, that those are the places that we reinvest in communities to curb various forms of neighborhood violence. So I think we see, you know, certainly more moments of contention and, um, you know, uh, 
conflict amongst different groups in the city, but also opportunities, particularly around schools where folks have really come together to powerfully push for change. And, and with that point, in, in the final few minutes that we have you, um, this, is, this is an incredible project. Thank this you. This is an incredible book. Um, and, and, and it obviously, you know, shows and, and you could see it through your acknowledgments that there is a whole family that helped to birth this, Absolutely. Uh, this beautiful child book <laughs> baby uh, that we have right here. Um, and with that, could you talk to us a bit about what brought you the most joy about writing this book? And also as a, as a, a follow-up on that one, uh, can you also speak to how your book can be incorporated, you know, in communities today? Because it also sounds like, you know, your book is in conversation, not only with, you know, the historiography, but also about, you know, with people today, especially on a day after, you know, or a day or whatever after we find out that, you know, no matter who wins the Chicago election, that a black woman for the first time will be elected mayor of the city of Chicago. Yeah. Let me start with the joy because, you know, I think so so much we get caught up in like the tedium of book writing, but there was so much joy involved in writing this book. And I'm thinking of like a number of specific examples, but I love talking with my elders and being able to have people tell me their stories. I'm just so grateful for, and they were just life affirming conversations because it reminds you that while the work ahead may seem daunting, you know, when I'm talking the big work, right? Ahead may be may seem seem daunting. You're, you're we're standing on the shoulders of amazing giants, right? Folks who have been doing this work, who have been, you know, on the ground working for change, pushing for up for affirming visions of what a future can look like. Um, and so I think just having those conversations with my elders was one of the most gratifying parts of this project. Um, and on the, I guess on another side, being able to share this work with young people has been really exciting as well. Um, so I was able to, recently I gave a talk to a group of high school students um, and I was a part of a series of some other fact, like uh, UIC faculty members who are going into high schools, uh, going to this high school to, to give talks to one particular classroom, a social studies class. Um, and to just, you know, see the ways that students saw this history resonating with their own experiences, their own struggles and challenges. Um, and I think it's always important for me that I think there are parts of this history that can feel depressing or, um, you know, sort of drag you down. But to me, this is a motivating history. You know, this is a history that makes me want to get out and do something. And to see young people feel that way as well is really gratifying. Um, this particular group of students, not just because of my talk, but this series of talks decided that one of the actions they wanted to take um, was to organize a mayoral forum. And so they organized a student-led mayoral forum at their high school coming out of this, um, you know, this series of conversations they've been having. And so that was really cool. Um, and I think just also having opportunities to share this work with people outside. Of course, I, you know, I want my peers in academia to engage with the work um, as well, but being able to have conversations outside of, um, you know, an academic setting about this history and being able to share this history outside of an academic setting has been really exciting for me as well. So I've had opportunities to give talks 
um, with teachers to give talks with the Chicago Teachers Union. And the Chicago Teachers Union talk was really cool too. It was as part of their Black Lives Matter at School Week. And, um, you know, I gave a little talk about the book and particularly focusing on the long history of organizing by Black educators in the city. But I was joined afterwards in a conversation with a number of folks who I either had an opportunity to speak with in the process of writing the book, um, who are on the ground doing this work today and have been, you know, for decades. So some veteran retired Black educators, um, two educators who at the time were running for Alderman, which is our city council, um, who had also had this long history of organizing another teacher or a teacher and a former teacher and a parent who had participated in a hunger strike um, to keep diet high school open. So to be able to share that space with them and have them talk back to the history that I had been telling uh, was just really powerful and wonderful. Um, And being able to have those experiences has been really great and joyful as well as I think um, a way that I'm hoping the book can be used for others to mobilize or take one, take from it what they see empowering um, to, to move forward in the work that they're doing, both in terms of the stories and analysis. Uh, and then when I think about this current um, election, it's really interesting. You know, uh, there are two Black women candidates uh, who are in this runoff, and neither of them were won, won the Black vote. Uh, which is, you know, a, a starkly different political alignment than, say, the era of Harold Washington. At the same time, I think that being there speaks to this long history of Black women's um, political mobilization in the city, and that goes up to today. So Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot, who are the two um, remaining candidates, they come out of different traditions um, and different histories than someone like Harold Washington. Um, so, and even what brought Harold Washington to office, right, which was a movement. Neither of them are coming out of a movement for their election. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle was a sort of independent-minded alderman um, on the South side and now has become the the political boss of the Cook County of Cook County government here in the city. Um, And Lori Lightfoot um, was an appointee of both uh, Mayor Richard M. Daly and Rahm Emanuel. Uh, She was the head of the police board, uh, which has been a controversial position here in Chicago. Um, So they come. Yeah. But but I think what's what's interesting about both their backgrounds and what they're doing today is that they have both put forth um, far more progressive platforms than anything we've seen before. And or I shouldn't say anything we've seen before, but anything we've seen recently in this city in a mayoral election. And that is because the community organizing that has happened in this city over the last several decades, particularly around issues like police accountability, um, police around police murders and police shootings, around um, the need for investments in neighborhoods and a redistribution of resources from downtown to communities, particularly on the predominantly Black West Side and South Side. And then importantly, around education. If you look at the education platforms of both of these candidates, they very much reflect what grassroots community organizers have been pushing for, and that many of these young organizers that have been pushing for police accountability, who've been pushing for um, a redistribution of wealth, who've been pushing for reinvestments in neighborhood schooling, those are young Black women, right? So there's so many different ways in which we see the role and importance of young Black women, older Black women, this intergenerational group of Black women who have always, we know, been involved in organizing and political work in Black communities coming to the fore at this moment um, is exciting. 
it's exciting. Very much so. And, and one, one last one, if you don't mind, one last one, if you don't mind, please. this is a very fun question. It's one of my favorite questions I ever ask. So if you had a chance to revive two people for one, ex- one, five, six course meal, and you can ask them anything that you want. Obviously, you're going to ask many questions over the course of this time. But what would be two of the questions that you would ask two people that you can revive for that evening? Um, and, and also, why would you choose those particular people as well? These are historical figures? Anybody. Could be any historical figure. Can be in the book, okay. outside of the book, whenever, yeah, wherever. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is hard. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm not gonna overthink it. I feel like later I'll be like, no, nah, I should have said this person. Oh, I really would have wanted this person. But two people that first came to mind, so I'm just gonna go with them. One you mentioned earlier was Ida B. Wells. Mm. Um, and the other that I was thinking about was Ella Baker. Um, and I think I just want I would just wanna hear them tell their stories. I wanna hear about how they came to their work. I want to hear about what they think is most important for us today. I'd want to hear about their organizing strategy. Certainly we have wonderful histories written about them, but I think I I want to know the stories behind the stories, right? Like what's that sidebar Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you said, don't ever tell anybody this, but right. Like, and also just like, like, what's your favorite food? (laughs) What's your favorite color? You know, what brings you joy? How did you sustain yourself through these, you know, these amazing periods that we look back on now historically as amazing periods and amazing impact that you've had? Um, but yeah, to just talk to them as people as well, I think that would be pretty amazing. That it would, and Lord knows, uh, Ida B. Wells is, you know, she 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 should oh she should receive every bit of flowers that we can give her. Uh, you know, I'm so glad to see that uh, her 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 uh, descendant. Um. Uh, uh. That there's now a Ida B. Wells. I don't know if it's Road Boulevard, but there's a no, street, street. Right. Yeah. There, there's a street. Yes, Congress Parkway was renamed after Ida B. Wells. That the, it was actually just unveiled um, a few weeks ago, which is fantastic and and long overdue. And I guess in that spirit, I'd also like to lift up some work. Um, but if you're ever in Chicago, I highly recommend that you um, get a book. It's called Lifting as They Climbed. And written by Lifton as they climbed. It's a short um, book uh, by Essence McDowell and Miriam Kaba, and they profiled a number of Black women. On, this focuses on the South Side historically, um, and it's it's so that you can do your own walking tour of Chicago and go to the different stops um, and learn about these amazing Black women um, who shaped the South side and shape black history. Um, you know, I think it goes without saying between us, but you know, um, black women are still overlooked, uh, in, in the history and the telling of, of history. Um, and so I think it's a really powerful piece. I'm actually in the process of trying to convert parts of it into a walking tour for, um, elementary school age students, which is, has been an interesting challenge, but, um, it's a really great guide and way to way to see the city if you're ever in Chicago and to explore the South side through, um, really important, uh, black women historically. And I know they're in the process, I believe, um, of turning it into a sort of more formal book that, uh, includes black women on the West side as well. Hey, so, hey, got, got to, got to plug it and <laughs> got to plug it when you can. And, uh, and that person who I mentioned before that was Ida B. Wells is, uh, uh, descendant, 
for the listeners out there, that is um, Michelle Duster um, as well. And so God has got to got to yes. make sure to speak her name and, you know, provide the actual person and not just, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, particular pronouns or anything. Speak to the actual person. Um, and yes. And yes. so thank you so, so much for for chatting with me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor. And I'm so glad that um, we 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 I think it was a random occurrence, saw each other at a sala um in october in indianapolis yeah. and you told me oh you're oh you're the podcast guy i'm like oh, oh yeah that's me <laughs> um and, and so that was just you know you talk about joy that brought me uh so much joy because it you know I, I love being able to chat with some amazing scholars it's it's i look out on it every now and again and think like my god i've spoken to these people what I got this opportunity and it's, and it's a blessing and it's, and it's a blessing to have had you on today. Um, and, and thank you so much. And you're doing great work. Keep doing what you're doing. This is a service for all of us. So thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, I will see you at the university of Michigan in a few weeks at the African American yes. intellectual history Society's uh, conference station at the university of Michigan and Arbor. Yes. Yes, it's going to be Looking a fun time. Absolutely. And so once again, folks, I am your host of New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. And today we've had the opportunity to speak to the phenomenal Dr. Elizabeth Todd Breland, who is the Assistant Professor of History at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And uh, we've had the opportunity to discuss her amazingly uh, uh, beautiful book, published by our friends at UNC Press, entitled A Political Education, Black Politics and Education Reform in Chicago Since the 1960s. And until next time, New Books and African American Studies listeners and the listeners' entire network in the entire world, this is Adam McNeil once again, over and out. <laughs>